Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a horror anthology podcast by Superversive Radio, with no affiliation with any detective agency, person real or imagined, or the dark forces of Terre. It is not intended for children. Jim Donovan, calling in on September 10th, 2200 hours. I am recording from my office on Ventura Boulevard. I was awake when Control texted me. Been having nightmares all night. Whereas most people think sleep paralysis demons are figments of their imagination, hallucinations caused by the mind's inability to distinguish dream from reality, I know mine are real. I got up and started nursing a bottle of Jameson. I hate Irish whiskey, but sleep paralysis demons thrive on positive thoughts and experiences. Maybe I'll get lucky and eventually starve mine to death. My phone vibrated and I read the message. We have reason to suspect the meteoric rise to fame of pop artist Ginny Abernathy, also known as Gin A, to be the result of a Faustian deal with Outre Terre. Investigate to see if she has contracted a crossroads deal with the devil, or some other malignant force. The usual Sammy Davis Jr. protocols apply at your discretion. Only intervene if you deem her muse to be a threat to the general populace, or if Ginny is a trapped innocent. I downed the last of the glass of whiskey I had poured and turned on my laptop. There are any number of supernatural forces that can enhance an otherwise mediocre talent. Granted, all pop stars are mediocre talents, but some are more so than others. When it comes to fame and success, demons, fae, vampires, any creature capable of striking a deal with humans will do so to gain a lasting advantage over the mortals. Demons seek to gain souls, fae seek to gain favors, and vampires are always searching for fresh blood. Of the three, I'd rather deal with demons. While they are without a doubt the most powerful force of Terre, they also have the most restrictions placed on them. The Fae and vampires are not only more free to act, but their motivations can be more difficult to suss out. I did a few Google searches on Miss Abernathy. Since I don't listen to pop music, I was mildly surprised to see I recognized her face. I remembered her as a somewhat popular country western singer about five years ago. She was pretty, wholesome, but didn't seem to stand out in her field. The new pop star version of her was definitely more lascivious, and was far more popular with the masses than she ever had been in her sweet country girl persona. Her change from country to pop happened two years ago, and her meteoric rise to fame seemed to accompany the switch. As I said, there are several possible explanations, beyond the potential of a vanilla mortal successfully rebranding herself. Popular fiction has really played classic Crossroads Deal of the Devil up, and thanks to a TV show that's been running for the last 15 years or so, I've been seeing more cases of people trying to make deals with demons, regardless of the risks involved. Those contracts are a special kind of hell. Our species is too willing to sacrifice our future for a slightly better present. With country singers, jazz groups, blues players, and death metal bands, demonic contracts have a special place in their lore. The internet had no dearth of suggestions for how she had successfully rebranded herself. The most popular opinion being that she was breaking from the tradition imposed on her by her staunchly religious family and was finally pursuing her real passion. Occam's razor be damned. I didn't consider that to be actionable intelligence. I went through press photos stretching back from the beginning of her career to present day. It was all the same smiling face, but her apparel went from that suiting a demure ingenue 
to a dockside harlot. But one thing I noticed in all of her photos post-Renaissance, in almost every photo or photo shoot, the same pale woman appeared in the background. The woman in question was tall, easily over six feet, and quite well, um, proportioned. Her clothes were always expertly tailored, always in shades of green. Her color scheme matched her emerald green eyes and complemented her dark brown hair. She looked Irish in that perfect, hitting every well-honed warning bell in my head kind of way. I tried a variety of Google searches to see if anyone had identified the woman, and though several people had noticed her, there was nothing more than speculation and conjecture as to who the mysterious woman could be. It was easy to find Miss Abernathy's lineage, the majority of her friends, and an assortment of lovers, but the woman in green remained a mystery. The woman in green wasn't suspicious in and of herself, and had I not been looking for anything out of the ordinary, I'm certain I wouldn't have even considered her an option. However, in this instant, taking into account that Control had told me of the possibility of a Faustian deal, I went over what I knew. Devils don't linger around their clients after a deal has been struck, because their contracts bind the soul. Vampires may stick close to their prey, but they are ambush predators, and do not like to be seen in public wherever possible. That left the Fae. The Fae folk, the supernatural denizens of the dimension Tirananog, are similar to humans in form, but are ancient, potentially immortal. I have not come across much in the way of a clear theory as to their origins, but it is my own belief that they were Nephilim, the scions of devils who mated with humans. The Nephilim are terrifying creatures of the old times, towering far above mere mortals. For a time, they ruled the earth with an iron fist, until the Almighty sent a flood to wipe them out. It is my belief that though the bodies of the Nephilim perished, their souls are bound in a dimension separate but parallel to our own, and they have been waiting ever since until they could reclaim their bodies and rule the earth as they once did. This makes them of Otra Terre. There was no other solution before me. By whatever means, Ginny Abernathy had contracted with one of the Fae, and in return, it gave her talent, wealth, and fame beyond what she was capable of on her own. I needed to know if she'd entered into this contract willingly. If not, then I had a duty to break this contract with this creature of Terre. To this end, I had to seek Ginny out. I had to attend a concert. I hate concerts. Doesn't matter who the band or artist is, concerts are always too loud and crowded with the overwhelming smells of body odor and marijuana. Hordes of unwashed people. Ugh. Still, I had to know the particulars of Ginny's deal with the Fae. I had to know if their influence was benign or sinister. I wasn't surprised to find out Miss Abernathy was touring in Los Angeles. I knew, Control, that you wouldn't send this mission to me if there wasn't some way for me to reach her. Since I don't make much money working for the paranormal Pinkertons, I hope you'll understand that I was not abusing the company expense account by getting both a ticket and a backstage pass to a Gen A concert. I got the usual preventative measures ready. I slipped a simple iron ring onto my right middle finger. I put on a simple gold cross necklace and put a small file of holy water into my pocket. It wouldn't hurt to have contingency plans. Jack keeps going on about fire, but I'm not going to burn down a concert hall. Admittedly, the last concert I went to was a Michael W. Smith Christian rock concert in the 90s, so there were quite a few differences between the two experiences. One thing remained the same. I wanted to go home and read a book. After showing my pass to a guard, I asked a concert attendant if there was a spot for tired and antisocial adults who were forced against their will to attend. The guard was a young guy, skinny, didn't look like he'd even started shaving yet. 
He gave me the look we gave the hopelessly out of touch and said, no, there's just the concert. I grimaced and went inside. Without intending to, I was immediately swept up in a rush of bodies. I was surrounded on all sides by people of indeterminate age or sex. The lights were so dim inside the concert venue that I couldn't even swear if all the people bumping into me were human. The noise was so loud and grating that I did not hear them with my ears but felt it with my soul. I cannot in good conscience call it a music concert. More like a bacchanal orgy where all the participants somehow remained fully clothed and upright. But where the press of bodies, the strobe lights, and the rhythmic beat all focused on whipping the crowd into a frenzy. And then, I felt a pressure on my mind. It wasn't my normal hatred of crowds. It was an oppressive weight. I felt my mind wanting to slip into the pleasing nirvana created by the mob. I felt an outside presence encouraging me to lose myself in the music and become one of the screaming teenagers. It was a magical pull, a type of glamour that warps the mind, but was subtle enough that the untrained observer would think it was just the normal mob mentality. My skin felt clammy as the sweat of a thousand ecstatic bodies clung to me. My internal temperature spiked from both the ambient body heat as well as my own personal fear that this much close proximity would infect me with some rare and vile virus. I focused all my mental energy on resisting the siren call to lose myself in the beat and rhythm. And it was so difficult that I found myself trembling as a result of the mental exertion. I have trained for years to resist mental intrusion. I have years of practice facing supernatural foes of various ilk. But I regret to say that after a time, I could not resist any longer. The call was too strong and it hurt too much to block out the magical allure to conform. And so I started, jumping up and down in time with the bass beat. I don't know how long the concert lasted. I can't even remember the songs. My time inside, it felt like euphoric bliss. I woke up disheveled, confused. Some sort of fey trick to whip the horde into a frenzy had taken me. The forces of hell are more like uncaring cocaine dealers rather than party planners, and vampires aren't capable of such sweeping mental magic. I violently shook my head, collected myself, and looked around. People were streaming out of the concert venue. I was alone in my section of the hall. I took a deep breath, knowing I'd have to endure fans, and exited the venue. I found a bored-looking security guard and asked where the backstage passes were to go. He pointed me to some brightly lit areas of the concert hall. He looked me over and said, Don't go causing any trouble. An unaccompanied adult male is apparently treated with suspicion when pretty young women are concerned. I'd been in LA too long to blame him for his caution. I reassured him I was just here for an autograph for my kid, and went in. There were so many screaming, squealing teenage girls. I groaned inwardly, praying for death or at least a nice peaceful coma. The horde of bouncing, jumping women were swarming around a short brunette with dyed blonde hair. Jenny Abernathy looked tired, but was definitely reveling in the adulation of her fans. There were several men in black suits standing around, some near her, some on the outer edges of the circle. They eyed me, and it was very clear that I had best not make any sudden or threatening moves. While I did not avoid eye contact, I was not looking to invite any undue attention. So I stood around casually, 
with my private investigator's license in my pocket, just in case I needed to prove my credentials. Fortunately, it didn't come to that. I saw a bubbly blonde on the fringes of the crowd look at me, and then peel off from the flock of shrieking harpies to stand in front of me. She was short, shorter than most women. If she was five feet tall, I would eat my hat. Hi, my name is Cat. She exuded and stuck out her hand. I don't trust friendly people, but I hate hurting happy girls' feelings. I took my hand out of my pocket and gave her a firm handshake. Her eyes widened with fear and pain as she touched the iron ring on my middle finger. She jerked her hand away with more speed and strength than most women her size have, and gave me a look of feral hatred. The fey folk hate iron. It hurts them like acid would burn a regular mortal. There are many speculations why. Personally, I think it ties back to my earlier theory that the Fae are either the Nephilim or descended from the Nephilim. Tubal Cain, descendant of the first murderer, became the father of blacksmiths, and, using his newfound skill of bronze and iron, waged war against the Nephilim of his day and killed their champion, Anak. The fear of iron left a spiritual legacy on the Fae. Perhaps they remember the first time it was used against them in earnest, the first time a mortal man killed their kind. Cat felt the burn of the iron. My mouth was open, about to negotiate with her. But she spoke a word in Gaelic, and my vision went black. I felt as though icy fingers were pressing against my skull. In a sudden pop sensation, the external pressure on my skull yielded, and those icy cold fingers sunk into my brain, caressing my memories and making me see and feel things that I thought were buried and forgotten. I saw every failed relationship, every argument that led up to the inevitable breakup, every time I yelled, every time I stood aloof from arguing, because, well, I decided it wasn't worth yelling at her. I relived the pain of hearing that my dad had died. It was a heart attack, and he just wasn't able to hold on until I got to the hospital to say goodbye. And then, the fingers touching my brain went from making me simply see past memories to reliving them. I stopped being an outside observer of my past and became an active participant again in my brother's suicide. I saw him, holding the gun, finger trembling, lip quivering as he begs me to save him, to stop him, to protect him from the mistakes I had made. It was different this time. His voice was a little too high-pitched and fast. He wasn't smiling like that the first time it happened. That weird, unnatural smile. And then I heard whispers in my head as dark shadows surrounded me. Every word my brother said, the shadows would echo. The lights in the room shifted from normal fluorescent bulbs to a sickly green. Reverb danced over my ears. I didn't see just one brother killing himself. I saw two, four, eight, sixteen times in a kaleidoscope of memories that nearly killed me once. The shot recurved around itself into painful repetition flashing like a strobe light. The pressure of the image is pushing my head down into my chest, trying to bring me to my knees. The distortion in my brother's voice grew greater, and I felt... I felt calm. I had endured this once before and come out stronger. And this creature that was toying with my mind had miscalculated. Maybe if I wasn't a paranormal Pinkerton. Maybe if I was just an average Joe. This wasn't real and I knew it. Everything had the distortion of fake reality to it, and so I shook the icy tendrils out of my brain, my vision returning to normal, 
and I bent down and stared the blonde woman in the eye. I said, don't do that again. Her eyes widened. It was clear that she expected this to go on for some time, and for me to emerge a babbling wreck. In a horrified voice, she whispered, Who are you? Since my identity really didn't matter, I replied, I'm a man sent to investigate your hold on Jennifer Abernathy. My hold? She said with surprise, and a tinge of anger in her voice. How dare you assume I would be a base, classless, inelegant, vulgar, mainstream pop sensation? I am not holding her, she is holding me. With that, the pieces started falling together. With every bit of Fay, Otraterre, Deep One, or what have you, there are families, nations, and tribes within the larger group. Cat was a Leonan she. They come to artists, actors, painters, musicians most often, and they offer a symbiotic arrangement. They will enhance the artist's skill while being sustained by the artist's life and energy. However, while the promise is a deal made of equals, the reality is more of a parasitic, vampiric arrangement. The artist does indeed enjoy a boost from the Leonan Chi, but they die young, as the face steadily drains the life from them over a matter of weeks and years. This can go both ways. A human can, if they are canny enough, and have an amazing grasp of contract negotiations, trick the Leonan Shi into a less deadly, but still profitable arrangement. For a solid second, my heart went out to her. I thought it was so sad that an immortal creature would be enslaved to someone as petty as a human, especially a human who chose to be a pop star. I imagined how it would be, seeing the world in its infancy, watching mankind grow, learn, fight, kill, love, explore, and, in many ways, to have a hand in some of the most memorable artistic achievements man has ever created. But she was a creature of Otraterre, and she had attempted to turn me into a babbling wreck by using my brother's suicide as a mixtape. I looked Cat in the eye, feigned a sympathetic smile, and said, I'll talk to her. I waited with Cat for Jenny's fans to leave. In the blink of an eye, she changed from the bubbly short blonde to the tall brunette from the pictures. Finally, Jenny pulled away from her fans and looked over at me. She saw me standing with Cat. Her eyes narrowed and she stormed over. She demanded to know what I was doing with her. Instead of answering her question, I took her hand, shook it, and said, I don't care about your music, but anyone who can outsmart a Leonanshi in contract negotiations is deserving of admiration. Keep up the good work. Jenny smiled sweetly at me. Cat, however, erupted in Gaelic swearing. As I walked away from the women, Cat uttered such curses at me as would make a boat full of sailors blush. If it wasn't for the cross around my neck, this beautiful face might have turned into that of a donkey, or might have had my groin filled with cottage cheese. Who knows what the fair capable of? I turned back and called out to Jenny. She's a keeper, that one. Don't you let her get away. I walked home. Control, I don't think Ginny Abernathy is in danger of the Leonon she harming her. In all the lore I read, even King Oberon and Queen Titania, the Fey monarchs of Tir Nanog, allow mortals to keep Fey slaves, if the Fey was at fault for getting sloppy. What worse punishment is there for a Leonon she than pedestrian entertainment? I'll drop off my notes in the usual box. Until next time, 
This is Jim Donovan, out. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a podcast distributed by Superversive Radio, licensed under an attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international license. This episode was written and performed by Ken Dickison. Ken Dickison performs our audio editing. Ben Wheeler edits the drafts, directs, produces, and herds cats. Visit us on Facebook, read articles on SuperversiveSF.com, and wherever podcasts are distributed, you'll find us. Contact us through Twitter at Pinkerton's Ghosts, or send an email at PinkertonsGhosts at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.